Hello, 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 and welcome back to the IBS Freedom Podcast. I am joined by Amy Holland Camp to the R to the D, and I am pleased to report we're talking fat soluble vitamins and their associated minerals today. So strap in for a good conversation. Amy, it's good to be back. We were unbeknownst to all of you, we were on hiatus on vacation for a couple of weeks because I peaced out and visited family in in Buffalo, New York for a few weeks. So we're very excited to be back in action. We were going through withdrawals, not not having Amy and Nikki time for a few weeks. So it's good to see your face, Amy. And where where shall we begin? Well, first, you abandoned me. <laughs> so we're going to need to talk that out. Okay. Um, yeah, where do we start? I, I think a good place to start is like whenever we're talking about nutrients, I always think it's it's good to just take like a broader view of things. Mm-hmm. Uh, I guess it's broad, but like if you look at any of these nutrients like that we're going to talk about, they're so important to everything. And I think a lot of times within the gut health space, people are so caught up in like what foods I need to be avoiding. And they're not mm-hmm. talking about nutritional status at all. Yep. But like if yep. you have deficiencies um, in the restrictive diets create a lot of potential for deficiencies. Yeah. You can have so many things that could be going wrong. Um, so I really like, I like that we're taking an, an opportunity to discuss nutrients and how they're important in gut function, because I think there's very little discussion of that in the gut health space. Yeah. I mean, outside of maybe just like general stuff, but, um, I think it's really, really crucial to change how people are speaking about nutrition as a whole in the gut health space. And the fact that we can talk a little bit deeper about some of these nutrients, I think is important. Yeah. No, and I think that's a really good place to start because it's almost, I'm going to, I'm going to go there. I'm going to say this is almost a similar conversation to hormones. Whenever we talk about thyroid hormone or estrogen or Mm -hmm. testosterone, like hormones interact with every single cell of your body, period. So right. pun, hormone pun not intended, actually. But <laughs> if you think like you can go on to PubMed and you can search estrogen and bone, estrogen and skin, estrogen and motility, estrogen and cerebellum, like you name the body part, slap it with a hormone, search for it on PubMed, and I guarantee you, you're going to find research. Same thing is true for these vitamins and minerals that we're going to cover in this next little series. All of it, like every cell of your body needs zinc. Every cell of your body needs magnesium. Every cell of your body needs vitamin A, vitamin D. So, you know, we're going to get into some like tidbits and factoids and some instances where we might think about these nutrients more. But acknowledge, I want to acknowledge that these nutrients are important for every living, breathing human and every tissue and every structure in the living, breathing human's bodies. So like resist the temptation to get really into the minute details and Mm -hmm. use it, you know, also resist the temptation. Usually I would say to think that you just need like one supplement. Like, oh, the the one nutrient deficiency that everybody else missed. And this is why I'm still sick. You know, like the Holy Grail approach of like, oh, it was riboflavin. And sometimes that is the case. But also more often than not, that's not it. It's like 
Datis Grazia jokes about that a lot, or used to, about how, like, you would go to his, his thyroid seminar, for example, and he would be like, let's just start by saying it's not an iodine problem for 99.999% of your patients. Right. And it's, it's It goes beyond a single nutrient deficiency for the majority of people you're going to see in practice. And I would say that's largely true. Although, fun fact, we're not on the mineral episode yet, but I did see one case of a big old goiter and mm. it completely went away and TSH completely normalized with iodized salt yeah. in the diet. So occasionally you can see single nutrient deficiencies and they can be really wild. But I would say for most people, you want to zoom out and look at the whole picture of like, not just one B vitamin, but like how the B vitamins hang out together and interact with each other or what they do broadly. Or like, we're going to talk about the fat soluble vitamins and a few of their associated minerals because they all work together in ways that we probably have yet to comprehend. Right. I, I think there's definitely a synergistic effect that's seen really clearly with fat soluble nutrients too like if you're taking one fat soluble nutrient you could be depleting another fat soluble nutrient so you see that really clearly i i do think the synergy is really interesting and how a lot of foods have synergy about them too like certain foods will have vitamin a vitamin d like Mm -hmm. salmon things like that but i also find it's important too, like if you do have a deficiency or like an an imbalance of some of these nutrients too, like I also think it's equally as important to understand what's driving it. Like again, you could take a, a vitamin and it hopefully will go up, but like with gut stuff too, there could be reasons like may, maybe the major problem is that you're not absorbing the fat and then mm-hmm. therefore you're not absorbing the fat soluble nutrients or Maybe stomach acidity is low and that's affecting like mineral, uh, mineral absorption and digestion, those digestion and absorption. So I do think there's different elements and I I think you're right. It's not, (laughs) I wish it was as simple as like, oh, I'm just deficient in this one thing. And that's the reason for all my problems. Um, but yeah, I, I think, I think the best way to think about it and it's just so opposite of the gut health space is like the more diverse you can eat, the yeah. less chance you're going to have of a nu- nutrient deficiency, like as an overall Absolutely. goal. It's the total opposite of what we're, what what's preached often in the gut health space. And I, I, I get frustrated as a dietitian, the, the level of restriction focus there is, because yeah. again, I, I think you're, you're not doing giving justice to how important nut- like nutrition is as a whole when you're when you're boiling it down to restricting things. So yeah, I'm I'm pumped for this for this convo. Do you have a a yeah. certain nutrient you'd like to start with? Not a nutrient, but I'm going to throw this out there also in our effort to kind of zoom out before we zoom in. Okay. You know, you mentioned that maybe you have low stomach acid or you're not absorbing nutrition properly. I would even say, like, I, I find a lot of people who come to see me believe that they have malabsorption. <laughs> yeah. Or they believe that they have low stomach acid. But then when we dig a bit deeper, especially if we have them, like, do more food diary work, we find that, no, it's just that you're not taking in what you thought you were taking in. And I, I you know, because we've been texting about this, but for everybody listening, mm-hmm. we've been texting a lot about iron lately. Because both of us found, hopefully I, I, I'm okay to share this. Both oh, yeah, of us found sure. that our ferritin was subpar, both, I think, in the 30s. And right. we were like, WTF? 
OMG, like we, we need to work on this. And it's just because I've run yearly blood work on myself. And I, I happened to notice a few months ago, it was right at 50. And I was like, hmm. And then I retested a few months later and it was at like 33. And I was like, oh, so I caught it before it got really overt. I, Amy, was 1000% convinced that I was ingesting enough iron. I was, mm-hmm. I was convinced yeah. because we eat red meat a few times a week, usually at my mom and dad's house. We'll have like steak or burgers. We eat some sort of meat at dinner every day, whether it's pork or chicken or something. And we're not really bashful about the serving size either. And we eat a pretty good amount of vegetables. And I just, I was convinced like, wow, I'm really surprised that my iron is low. And I even told you initially, I was like, it must be because I added in a calcium supplement recently because I have been dairy-free for 10 years and I haven't given a rat's ass about calcium up until about two years ago when my mom obliterated her ankle and fractured it in three places and got diagnosed with osteoporosis. So I was like, okay, maybe the calcium and the iron are interfering, which we'll talk about on the mineral episode. But then I've been tracking my intake of different nutrients with chronometer and I haven't taken in enough. Any of the days, I've been doing this for a week and I'll be damned. Like, okay, the best day I've had was yesterday. I had 93% of the RDA. So I was like, woo. Day before, 54%, 77%, 90%, 70%, 58%. Holy effing F. Like, I really <laughs> thought that I was right. getting enough iron. And I I guess I was wrong. So I, I'm i finding that I need to be more mindful of my intake while also supplementing to replenish my, my ferritin to get it up a little bit more quickly. But like, it's so tempting in the gut health space for somebody who has IBS or SIBO or IBD or GERD. I think it's like almost this knee-jerk reaction to assume, oh, I have malabsorption. <laughs> right. And right. what I found is what I'm testing for markers that look for malabsorption, I'm finding it's actually very uncommon. What's more common is that people aren't taking in as much of the mm-hmm. nutrient as they thought they were. So bear that in mind with this entire conversation right. as well. Yeah. And I, I think I think your your best bet is to track intake first. Yeah. Uh, and see where you're at. Like that's usually what I have my clients do, even if it's for two days, like just to get a sense of like, are you in the ballpark, ballpark of where you need to be calories wise, which is like the total. Yeah. And again, most of my clients are not, which yeah. could like affect a lot of different things. And then we can kind of zoom in on the micronutrition, but I think you're right. And, and I also think too, like not having enough nutrition could also affect different digestive capacity. Oh, yeah. As well. So like, I think it becomes a very, it becomes a very, like a scapegoat type thing. Like, oh, well, I'm like, I'm losing weight because I'm not absorbing when it's really, oh, like, well, you're also not getting enough calories. That's probably why you're not able to maintain your weight. I I know exactly what you're saying. I I see that a lot with my clients, too. And I think it's like, nobody in their right mind wants to have malabsorption. So I don't, think it's even like on a conscious level. I just think that, well, A, I'm going to blame, I'm going to blame two things primarily. One is Facebook groups. Because, you know, Mm -hmm. like picture it, you get diagnosed with IBS or you get diagnosed with SIBO. And what do you do? You go to Facebook, you type in SIBO and you join all of the SIBO groups you can find. And then you go in these groups and they are depressing as all get out. (laughs) 
Yeah. And it's these mostly very sad, desperate people who are very unwell and they're trying to figure out their health stuff all on their own. No actual medical guidance, no actual professionals in there moderating these groups. typically. And it's just like, it's the blind leading the blind more often than not. And I don't mean that to be disrespectful, but it is the truth. And it's this, it's this blind leading the blind and this like, well, this worked for me. So give this a try. And it's like playing whack-a-mole. Like, okay, I'll try this supplement. Oh, I'll try this. Maybe, oh, I need this nutrient. And I think that it's like an echo chamber where people talk about malabsorption and like, you know, who knows who was the first person to post about malabsorption (laughs) in a SIBO group on the internet. Right. But once it was posted once, you know, everybody's looking for the diagnosis or the illness or the one holy grail thing that's holding them back. Right. And like they want to find out what's wrong with them. And I'm using air quotes if you're listening with audio only. They want to they want to find out what's wrong with them so they can fix it. And that's a slippery slope to go down. But it's like I think that a lot of people get this idea from Facebook groups or practitioners who nonchalant like I've had practitioners tell my patients like prior to working with me. They'll just mention nonchalantly, yeah, yeah, you have SIBO and you have malabsorption and yeah, no, 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 no. And it's like totally this, this very flip conversation. And then the patient Googles malabsorption and then they freak out. And then they come to me, you know, six months or a year later and they're like, I have a really tough case. I have severe malabsorption. And I'm like, no, dude, you're just not eating enough iron or whatever it might be. So it's, it's a very bizarre kind of, um, way that that happens. But if you're deficient in something, it's definitely worth your attention. And again, we'll talk a little bit about like the relevance of some of these individual nutrients, but keep in mind that overall nutrition is going to be your best bet for combating anything in the next three episodes. (laughs) Right. Like I think you're much better off looking at the nutritional side of things first. And then like, you know, if you're taking in vitamin D or you're taking in enough vitamin A or something and it's not budging for some reason. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, like, like I totally agree with you. I think the malabsorption uh, is not super common. I've seen some cases again from a, like, I don't want anyone to be like, well, I'm that one case. Like to, to it think exists. That. Right. It does exist. I've, I'm thinking of a, a couple clients in particular um, and they had more severe fat malabsorption and it definitely affected some of these fat soluble nutrients. Um, but like, again, you, I wouldn't ever assume that I definitely would see what your labs say. Um, and again, you're still better off seeing that you're getting enough nutrition and that's always like a key foundational step because it's so important regardless. And then, you know, exploring if there's any other issues that's preventing the actual absorption, that would be something to maybe address at a later date if if you weren't getting the outcomes based on yeah. the nutrition you're putting in. Yeah. Yeah. Um, okay. Well, let's talk about nutrients. But first, I want to acknowledge we are recording this in mid-July and you look like you're bundled up for Alaska. <laughs> you have on it's, the fuzziest, thickest, yeah, like... it's really fleecy looking jacket and it's cracking me up because I, for once in my life I'm wearing a t-shirt I have a heat right. well, on my lap, but still like I'm in a t-shirt I'm just cracking up looking at you because you look like you're like ready to go to the Alps 
Well, I'm ready for anything, Nikki. I don't know if you knew that, but uh, my husband likes to keep our air very cold in the summer. So usually I either have a blanket, like I have an office blanket up here, or sometimes I'll throw on a little sweater. But this is super cozy. It looks very cozy. <coughs> but I just, I wanted to acknowledge that you look like you could go for a hike on Everest. Well, uh, maybe I could. Maybe you will. Just not all the maybe way up the top. I don't want to risk my life. Yeah, that's fair. Not, yeah. not on the to-do list. No. Nope. Uh, all right. Well, uh, well, let me ask, um, which nutrient shall we start with? I think, so I'll propose that we pair up vitamin D and magnesium, okay. vitamin A and zinc, and then we could weigh in with vitamin E and vitamin K, although admittedly I'm a little bit less um, versed on those two nutrients, so I might kick that, right. those two to you a bit more than the other four. But which which would you like to start with, D or A? I think I'd like to start with A, and here's why. Okay, okay. I think I'd like to start with A. I'm actually experimenting with A myself personally. Okay. Um, so I... I am genetically more prone to vitamin A issues. Uh, um, I forget what the gene is. I should have looked it up. But I, like, BCMO? when you look at my... Is that what it is? Yeah, BCMO1. The, yep, the beta carotene. Right. Yeah. Yep. Okay, so I, you know, had my genetics done with 23andMe. And that, like, lit up like a Christmas tree. Like, everyone was, like, red, red, red. Like, the worst possible scenario for vitamin A stuff. Um. <laughs> So it's like an area that I that I pay attention to because this particular SNP, it prevents the activation of vitamin A. So like vitamin A, we always think of orange foods. Typically people are like, oh, carrots have vitamin A because it has beta carotene, which makes it orange. Well, that beta carotene can be converted to the active form of vitamin A. So, but my particular SNPs struggle with that conversion. So they struggle to activate the vitamin A for something that I could use. And I definitely get like um, keratosis pilaris on my arm. So oh, it's kind of yeah. like chicken skinny. Like, I don't know how to describe yeah, it. They call it's it, it's sort it's of like um, little bumps, like lots right. of little bumps, right? It's kind of rough patches. I get it on the back of my arms. I'll get it a little bit on my legs, but not much. Um, and it kind of ebbs and flows a little bit for me. Like I know if it's rearing its head that I need to mm -hmm. add a little bit of vitamin A. Um, also interesting enough, I get like orange, like I'll get really orange feet, really orange hands. Like in the past I have, uh -huh. Uh -huh. um, and I sort of suspect it's cause I just can't convert this stuff. And so when I eat like a lot of beta carotene rich things, I will get orange, like orange hands, uh, orange that's feet. That's funny. Even if I'm not eating like an absurd amount. You're um, straight I still, out of an episode of House. There's an episode of House. Right. So I, it's interesting to me, but I do notice I definitely get orange relatively quickly. Like if I mm. eat, go hard in the paint on carrots or something like that. Um, but so I'm experimenting with vitamin A um, and... Again, I've I've done this in the past. Typically, what I've seen with vitamin A um, is I get better sleep. It kind of helps regulate my circadian rhythms a little bit better. Um, not that I had bad sleep to begin with, but I sleep more undisturbed through the night. Um, I would say another weird thing I've noticed is that my cycles are a lot lighter. Hmm. I would say in general, like on average, I have more 
um, like, I wouldn't say super heavy, but like heavier than average from a cycle. 60th or 70th percentile of the bell curve, maybe. Right. So um, I took vitamin A and like this last cycle, which I ended relatively recently. So I've been taking it probably for like uh, maybe a month and a half or so. Um, in this last cycle, I've noticed like, oh, I'm a lot lighter, Hmm. um, cycle-wise and not bad. Like it was kind of normal, like what I would perceive as being normal or more average. So maybe in like the 50th percentile, um, and it was shorter. Like I usually will go into the seventh day, like really light, like nothing heavy, but like Uh it kind of extends a little bit and it was shorter in length and shorter in flow or like less in flow. Um, and I looked it up and vitamin A has a role in that. Um, and it's been linked to, like, they've done studies where they've given people that have, I think it's called like menorrhagia or something, which is like heavy menstrual flow. They'll mm-hmm. supplement with vitamin A and it it resolves in a lot of the cases or gets better. Huh. I think there was only like a small percentage of the study that didn't notice any effect. Um, and I don't know all the mechanisms, but this is just a positive thing I've I've experienced yeah, that's interesting. and maybe not everyone would experience that same effect. But uh, I think, you know, from a vitamin A standpoint too, uh, you know, for me, I do notice less KP on my arms mm-hmm. after I take it for a little bit. It takes some time for skin to turn over, but um, that's always like my big sign is looking at KP. Uh, and again, vitamin A is super critical for gut stuff too. Yeah. Um, and I think vitamin D and vitamin A really work. I'll do a lot of stuff at like the intestinal lining and mucosal level mm-hmm. um, from an immune system standpoint. Uh, I think even like IgA synthesis, the immunoglobulins yeah. in your butt, in, <laughs> in your butt. <laughs> The immunoglobulins <laughs> in your gut. Oh, yes. Not your butt. <laughs> the immunoglobulins in your butt, people. You can uh, hear first. Well, oh, I think my, my eyes went like four times bigger when that came out of my mouth. Ma- when that came out of my mouth. But the immunoglobulin synthesis in your gut, like the IgA, secretary IgA levels, <clears throat> require vitamin A. And I actually think, um, you know, if you don't have enough vitamin A, it affects tolerance to foods. Yes, that's what I was going to say. So And microbes. Yeah, for sure. I mean, the tolerance to foods is going to decrease a lot if you don't have enough vitamin A. Um, so it's just really, really important to make sure you're getting enough uh, vitamin A because it's going to help create a, a better barrier, like a better gut lining barrier a stronger uh, integrity there. And then also, again, from a tolerance standpoint, it's huge. Yeah. Yeah. And that was my biggest thing that I wanted to share too, is that if you want to induce tolerance, as it's called in research studies, which means like helping your immune system tolerate food, microbes, baby chemical compounds, things like mucus, I don't know, probably everything. But if you want your immune system to chill the F out and not launch an attack against everything in your gut, vitamin A is fantastic for that. Vitamin D is fantastic for that. And short chain fatty acids, namely butyrate. 
So those are really important for healing the gut lining if you have leaky gut. And they're very important for teaching your immune system, hey, man, you can chill out. Not everything is a threat, right? Like like a little annoying, you know, like a very tiny chihuahua who's just barking their head off. And it's like, all right, hey, no, we're going to show you that the world is not going to hurt you. Come here, let's let's pet you and... I don't know where I'm going with this metaphor. but you So are you just saying that the Taco Bell chihuahua just needed yes. some vitamin A and vitamin D? Yes. See, look, that's, again, <laughs> you he- heard it here first, folks. Yeah. Yeah. And the other thing, too, is that vitamin A is profoundly, profoundly anti-inflammatory. Mm-hmm. So, you know, if you kind of look at the the soup, that that is what we call inflammation. Now, granted, there's a lot of different types of inflammation. Saying you have inflammation is like saying you have soup. So it's like, okay, do you have chicken soup, tomato soup? Right. What kind of soup do you have? But one of the more commonly problematic types of inflammation where it's like the immune system is really revved up and there's autoimmunity and you're attacking stuff that you shouldn't be attacking. And there's a lot of inflammatory cytokines or inflammatory molecules signaling to your immune system, Mayday SOS, freak out right now. Um inhibiting the gene expression that turns on those inflammatory chemicals called cytokines and telling some of those immune cells, hey, man, whoa, shush, slow down. We don't need any more of you. Like that is something that vitamin A is really wonderful at. If you want to nerd out, it's called STAT3. That's one of the primary genes that I'm talking about. But vitamin A is a wonderful STAT3 inhibitor, as well as things like turmeric and resveratrol and green tea and some of the other anti-inflammatories we think of. But for, for years now, I've been doing higher dose vitamin A for very short term, like a couple of days, and then tapering people down to a more reasonable dose of like 10,000 IUs or 1,200 IUs a day for the sake of inducing tolerance and getting that really nice anti-inflammatory oomph right at the beginning when we start working together. But I will say I don't recommend doing that without supervision from somebody who knows mm-hmm. what they're doing. And monitoring blood levels. So I always, always, always order. Uh, LabCorp has a really nice panel where it's vitamin A and beta carotene. And I forget if it's plasma or serum. But I always check that before I do this with somebody. And that way, sometimes it gives me an idea if they have the BCMO conversion issue. Like mm-hmm. I remember one person, she had, like, I think the top end of the range for beta carotene is like 100, if I remember correctly. And the bottom end of the range for vitamin A is like 20. And I think her vitamin A was like five or nine. And her (laughs) beta carotene was like 400, way above and way below. And I saw that pattern. It was like, oh, okay, you, this, this explains this. So we didn't even need 23 and me for that person. Right. um, I always check it because if somebody, if I'm thinking about doing high dose vitamin A for a couple days, It's kind of a liability thing. Like, I want to cover my butt, and I want to make sure that it's safe to do that. If I were to test somebody and say they're already at, like, the 90th percentile for vitamin A, I don't want to take a risk giving them a high dose and then making them go into full-blown toxicity and then dealing with the repercussions of that. Granted, if you discontinue the vitamin A, the symptoms will go away. But I always check to make sure, and I'm comfortable doing that if they're at like the 50th percentile or lower. And I do find when I test for it, most people are in that kind of bottom 50th percentile when I test for vitamin A. So yeah. for what it's worth. Um, no, that's a that's a great point. I um, 
I think it's interesting. I remember in dietetic school feeling very nervous about active vitamin A. Mm-hmm. A lot of like the more conventional dietetics, I think, are very freaked out by vitamin A, like active yeah. vitamin A. They would be like, no, there's like risks yeah. of toxicity. And again, like there's certainly risks for with every nutrient. But like for some reason, they're very like focused on the vitamin A issue. Yeah. And maybe because yeah. there's kind of well-documented case of, cases of toxicity. Um, but it, it was always interesting to me how intense they were about it. Um, but I think, you know, there's a lot of people that have deficiencies in vitamin yes. A too. Yeah. And yeah. I think it takes someone that's going to be able to look at um, labs clinically and be able to say... Like you're going to benefit from this. Um, I, I would be. I would have been really curious at the time I had, especially in the past when I was having all major gut issues. In the past, yeah. when I had really orange hands. Yep. Um, my hypothesis at that time was that I had really, I had outright hypothyroidism. So like I was out of the free T3 range. I was in the ones. I was like 1.9. For my free T3. So I was yeah, pretty low. Yeah. Um, and my hands were especially orange during that time. And I think thyroid hormones play a role in the conversion. Mm-hmm. Um, so it did get better. But yeah, I think for a while I was a little scared of vitamin A, like active yeah, vitamin yeah. A because of just what I learned in the dietetic space. But I've, I think it can be really valuable uh for people that are having immune dysregulation. Um, And and again, a lot of people's gut issues, I think, and and are losing tolerance to things could really benefit from vitamin A. Yeah. And to your earlier point, I think the sexier nutrient in the last Mm -hmm. 10 or so years has been vitamin D. Right. And to your point, all the fat soluble vitamins work together. And you could say the same thing for minerals and B vitamins. They all kind of work together. But I think there's so many people who are supplementing with heavy, heavy doses of vitamin D. And that is like, maybe, what do you think? Maybe five years ago, like everybody kind of caught up to speed and they were like, hey, vitamin K2 is important. I'll be damned. And then it was like, all of a sudden, we had all of these products with vitamin D and vitamin K2. And Mm -hmm. a lot of people, thankfully, are taking that because... Probably a lot of us created massive vitamin K2 deficiencies for a couple of years there. I know right. I probably did for myself. But then vitamin D and vitamin A work together as well. So similarly, if you're taking vitamin D and you're not supplementing with A, you could run the risk of creating a deficiency if you also are not intaking enough. And right. if, you know, maybe you have this genetic SNP, I forget what the prevalence is. It's something like 30 or 40% of Caucasian people. I think what's coming to mind is they did it in Britain, I think, is where they pulled the population. I think it was like 48%. I don't know why that's number is sticking out to me, but I think it's relatively common. Actually, hold on. I can possibly answer this. Yeah, it's probably good not to just throw out random stats. Well, I don't know. I was totally keen to do it, but it just occurred to me. I have a binder with a bunch of stuff printed out about this, so let me see. But yeah, I, I think you're right. It's it's not uncommon. Um, no. I, not. And I think, too, um, 
I like what you're saying. Vitamin A or a, a good way to avoid vitamin A toxicity is to take it with vitamin D or and to kind of synergize the fat soluble nutrients. Um, I know like a, probably where I'd go to for fat soluble nutrient expertise would be Chris Masterjohn. Um, I do like him. Yeah. He, he's an, he's particularly an expert in fat soluble nutrients. Um, and he talks about, uh, these issues a lot. So like how to prevent toxicities, things like that. He has actually, he has a nutrient cheat sheet. Have you seen that or downloaded that or ordered it? Yeah, I have some of his paid stuff. I think I have the lab testing guide or whatever it is. Right. And it's like a, I think I might have it. It's like an ebook or something. Yeah. Yeah. I like that one. He, he has a new book coming out too. I'm excited about. I'm, I was not paid for this plug. I just like Chris Master John. <laughs> yeah, we we just we just have a crush on him, um, right? A science crush, um, yeah, okay. a brain. So crush. I was incorrect. Yes, I was incorrect. I don't have the stats here, but um, I forgot this BCML one, the enzyme that we're mm-hmm. talking about that is highly polymorphic. Uh, one of the cofactors is dun 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 iron. Yeah, so. If you want to convert your vitamin A and tolerate your freaking food, you need iron. Right. Well, and also me taking vitamin A and having less less flow in my periods will also help me with iron. Yeah. <laughs> Look at these connections. It's all connected. Look at these connections. Yes. Yeah. Only here on the IBS Freedom Podcast. Tell your friends. Right. Tell everyone you know. Yeah, I'm it's... It's a very important nutrient. And again, to your point, it's oftentimes overlooked. And it's, you know, it's not to say that you're doomed to have this. Gi- I will say, right. I, I'm pretty sure I have, I think I'm a heterozygous carrier for one one or two of the BCMO1 SNPs. Um, I haven't ever noticed like signs of deficiency. And actually, I don't think I've ever measured it myself personally. Um, right. But... And I've taken vitamin A and I haven't noticed anything like crazy different. But um, yeah, I think like, especially if you are a homozygous SNP carrier, meaning you have both of the SNPs, like positive, positive, um, then I would definitely pay attention to it. And at bare minimum, I would measure your levels or try experimenting with low to moderate dose vitamin A. Um, but yeah, right. always always with genetic stuff, go based off your symptoms, not just the SNPs. Right, um, right. Because I, you know, likewise, um, I have, I'm a homozygous carrier for CBS, which theoretically means that I'm not going to tolerate sulfur compounds very well, but I can take a truckload of glutathione and a truckload of alpha lipoic acid and NAC and I'm fine. So it's not always purely genetic what we're dealing with here, but it can be helpful to understand the BCML piece of it. Right. I agree. Yeah. I think I'm a CBS heterozygous. Like I have okay. some some stuff there, but nothing like major. But I tolerate sulfur fine. Yeah. Too. Yeah. Um, then I wouldn't worry about it. Yeah, but I yeah. think you're right. It's it's always better to clue in on how you're feeling. Um, yeah. Versus snips and things like that. Yeah, I do. We'll talk about this a lot more in the B vitamin episode coming up, but right. people... going to talk about know, MTHFR? 
Oh my god. <laughs> yes, we're gonna opening that can of worms. Oh goodness, 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 mm-hmm. goodness, goodness, goodness. Yeah, it's, it's gonna a be dollar, a it's gonna be gonna a real s- conversation when we get to the MTHFR discussion. Right. Um, I was gonna say if I had a dollar for every time I heard and I have MTHFR, like as something that we really need to pay attention to. And and again, like it's it's a a small factor. Mm-hmm. But I think, again, like, that's so nutrient-dependent, too. Like, if that yeah. is going to play a role, and it's really common. Like, I think it, people it's, kind of were like, I'm the exception. Crazy. Oh, no, no. No, and, and I, like, I'll tell you this is the B vitamin episode, too. So I went through a brief stint where I was very enchanted by the genetic thing. Yeah. And, and you know, I, like, took some classes, and it was really fascinating and I started having a lot of people run like a 23andMe or something similar. Right. And I was getting to know a lot of these SNPs. And while it was deeply fascinating, I also noticed that when I tried to develop protocols off of that information, I wasn't getting like wow results so much. Right. Um, but I went through a phase where I probably had looked at the, the SNP information for like 40 or 50 patients. I kid you not. One person did not have MTHFR. Yeah. One person. And she happens to be one of my more, I don't want to say difficult, but like we have not made a ton of progress working together. Right. So it's one of the more like tricky cases I've worked with and like really progressed chronic cases of severe IBS, severe bloating, diarrhea based IBS. And it's just wild because like, just looking at the genetics, she looks better on paper than literally everybody else, including myself. Right. But then she has some of the more debilitating symptoms and the more like long term, you know, like 10 year history of symptoms. So yeah, I, I don't think your genetics doom you at all, including MTHFR, but we'll we'll open that can of worms next time. Um, but let's segue over to zinc because zinc and vitamin A are BFFs forever. So I think that that's a very important conversation. I'll I'll throw this out as a starting point. Amy, have you ever done the test where you like swish the zinc solution in your mouth and then you you say whether or not you can taste it? Have you ever done that? Mm-hmm. And give, you, yes. give me your thoughts and I'm going to tell you a story. So I did do that with my first functional medicine practitioner. Okay. Um, and I didn't taste it. So... Okay. Uh, suspected zinc issues, um, which could have also been exacerbating some of my vitamin A situation. Yeah. Too. Yeah. But yeah, I'd love to hear your take on it. It's not something I've ever used as a marker, yeah. but I don't yeah. know. It's so, it's really fun. It's like a fun party trick and yeah. it's cheap, right? So yeah. for those of you who don't know, there's this zinc, I think it's zinc sulfate. It might be acetate. I forget which one. But there's like a liquid zinc supplement. You used to be able to get it from, I think, Metagenics and maybe Designs for Health. I don't know who has it now. But you you take like a little, you know, couple ml of this liquid and you're supposed to yeah. roll it around in your mouth for about 10 seconds and then you could spit it out or swallow it. And you're supposed to report if you could taste it. And I remember uh, it was the IFM... GI class that I went to in, I think, 2011. And this was like at the height of all my gut squirreliness. 
and like diarrhea and bloating and food intolerances. I was doing like basically AIP without calling it AIP and restricting my diet a lot. And I had just come off of not one, but seven years of hormonal oral birth control pills. Mm. I was, I had an irregular cycle as a teen and I was told here, this will fix it. Cliff notes did not fix it. Yeah. <laughs> like it just band-aided the symptom. But, um, so and hormonal birth control pills deplete you of uh, everything, but namely right. zinc, your B vitamins. Um, I think calcium and magnesium, if I remember correctly, definitely magnesium. Yep. Um, mm-hmm. So it just, it like wipes everything out or it creates a much higher need for those things. So we're at the seminar. It was a seminar of like 500 people, 99% of which were MDs and DOs. And then there was like one other chiropractor, me and like three acupuncturists or something. And right. so it's very MD heavy. And they, they went around to all of the 500 people and they handed out these little shot glass cups of the zinc solution and they didn't tell us anything about it. And they gave us instructions and they were like, okay, who here tasted nothing you think we gave you water? I raised my hand and probably 30 to 50% of the room raised their hand. They were like, all right. How many of you tasted a little bit of something, but you can't quite put your finger on it? It wasn't that, you know, it was kind of weird, but it wasn't bad. Maybe like 20, 30 percent of the room raised their hand. And then they said, all right, how many of you hope we never give that to you again? Because it was so disgusting and you never want to taste that stuff again. And the remainder of the room raised their hand. And they were like, okay, people, if you didn't taste anything, holy crap, you need zinc. I mean, this is, they didn't say that at the IFM. Right. But you get the idea. They were like, whoa, boy, you need zinc. And the people who tasted a little bit of something, you're probably kind of iffy. Just go eat some oysters. And the people who were good, you're good. It should taste gross. And I thought, that is the biggest load of horse shit I've ever heard in my entire (laughs) life. Absolutely not. No, no. So I went home. But I thought about it a little bit, right? Right. And I went home. And I kind of pondered it. And I got another bottle of the stuff. And I tried it. Sure as heck, I couldn't taste the stuff. So I was like, all right, fine. And I remember this was kind of... This might have been one turning point for me, honestly. I remember in at the point where I was doing more gut healing work, like the stuff that really stuck with me. Right. I did antimicrobials. I killed my parasites <laughs> from the creek water. And, you know, I was doing the antimicrobial stuff. I was doing the leaky gut stuff. But I also incorporated this, like, antioxidant supplement that happened to have quite a lot of zinc in it. And... Some combination of all of those together for several months was the turning point for me in my gut health. Mm-hmm. And then I didn't think much about the zinc challenge test until later on, but it was it was probably a few months after that. I got a bottle to have like in my office to use with patients and I tasted it. It's gross. Yeah. Like now <laughs> I taste it. So right. from an N equals one, I felt like it was accurate for me. Okay. I've looked at some research studies that basically refute it. And I I know some colleagues of mine who are like, I can't believe you would use that test. It's not accurate, you know. Nah. And it's like, I don't know, man. It seemed to be accurate for me. Right. My experience of it. I've had that happen with some patients. Not everybody. But if you don't taste it at the bare minimum, I'm going to be suspicious of zinc. And it's worth either getting your ass on a multivitamin that has zinc or right. maybe even doing a, a zinc supplement for a short period of time. Especially if you have a history of, again, oral hormonal birth control pills, which I did. And I, I think that it was a combination of that and the fact that I was a vegetarian for 12 years. Of, from the age of 11 to 22, I was a vegetarian. 
And Ugh, yeah, you know, so if you think about foods that are high in zinc, beef, lamb, right. <laughs> like red meat, which I didn't eat. Um, I want to say pork, but I think that's selenium, not zinc. Uh, maybe, you know, off the top of your head. And then like bivalves have a lot of, of zinc, but I wasn't, I was also like a cheap college student or right. grad student. And like, I'm not going to go to the store and buy oysters and clams right. on the regular. I'm just going to eat those when I'm home visiting my parents and they pay right. for it at that point mm-hmm. in my life. So I wasn't getting a lot of mollusks or seafood. I sure as heck wasn't taking a zinc supplement. So I think between being a vegetarian um, and also being on hormonal birth control pills, I think that my zinc was probably at like rock bottom for a lot of years. And I didn't know. Yeah. I think that's, that's, I think being vegetarian definitely puts you at risk for different things. And I think zinc's one of a major one. Yeah. Um, And I think too, even if you're not eating red meat relatively regularly, or again, like some oysters, things like that, mussels, which again, most people aren't eating on the reg. I would, um, for the record, like I would eat those right. every day of my life. I right. I will eat anything I, that came out of the ocean. But yeah, you know, it's just not something you're always buying when you're on a budget and you're a college student. Right. Well, I mean, I think if you lived like close to the ocean too, and they're more widely available, it, it might make sense to eat more often. Um, yeah. But but I would say most people aren't eating like mussels and clams like on a weekly yeah. basis. Um. I I would say more power to you if you want to do that. Um, Cause again, they're super healthy. Well, um, I don't know. Now I'm, I, the older I get, the more I'm concerned about the, like the microplastics yeah, like, and all the chemicals yeah. that are in. Oh, that's another topic for another day. <laughs> topic, my God. Right. But I well, would, I would eat mollusks every day of the week. Yeah. And I think, you know, same thing would go with vitamin A too. Like if you do have a, the, the snip that we were talking about earlier and you can't mm-hmm. convert, beta carotene into vitamin A, like if you're not getting it from animal foods, um, you're probably not going to get tons from the plant foods or there could be a, yeah. an issue with converting it from the plant foods. And so getting that checked might Hold make on. a lot of sense. I'll throw this out there too. If you're a BCMO one carrier, you're you're one of the people out there who should never ever 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 be a vegetarian right. or a vegan, right? Right. But yeah. you you hear those cases though, like there are some people who go vegan, and it, yeah, they, it's like a train wreck, and they right. feel horrible. But there's also people who go vegan and they feel amazing, mm-hmm. and they feel lighter, and it's you know you look at those and you're like, how did huh? you're both the same species? You're both humans. How does this work right. out? But if, you know, if somebody like you with high, with the BCMO1 SNPs and this history of like, you know, vitamin A symptom, deficiency symptoms and the orange palms or the orange feet, like you could eat all the butternut squash on planet Earth and theoretically not make enough actual vitamin A. So right. you becoming a vegetarian versus me becoming a vegetarian could be completely different stories. Mm-hmm. So it's... I, and I do think that was one useful tidbit from my my brief hiatus into 23andMe. Right, for and sure. Is like that kind of stuff. That is really valuable to know. So, right. do you know? Do you know Denise Minger? Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, oh God, what's the name of her book? Shoot, oh, I like her. It's I have it on uh, the shelf. Death by Food Pyramid. Yes, right? yep. And she has a 
She's hilarious. If you ever go to her blog, I think she she had a blog. I think it was called like Raw Vegan SOS. Um, okay. but she I think talks- it's just Raw SOS. Let me find it so we can tell people. But continue. Um, but she talks about this a lot too because she used to be Raw Vegan. Um, and I think she brings up that gene a lot um, when she's talking about who should and shouldn't go or or who might react mm. better to vegan compared to other people. Um, is it and- Raw... It was so it was rawfoodsos.com, yeah. but now uh, that URL redirects to denisemenger.com. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. She's, and it looks like. She kind of goes on hiatus. Yeah. More, more power to you, man. I mean, right. you've, you've contributed so much. But yeah, it looks like she didn't. Her last article was 2017. Then she did one in April 2020, and then July of 2020 are her more recent mm-hmm. ones. But yeah, I've. I really like her stuff. And I like that if you look at the tab titled for vegans, it starts out. It's like, don't run away. This isn't mean or scary. I promise. Right. Right. Because, you know, she gets it that maybe you don't want to eat animal protein or like flesh. Right. But she makes a really good case for being mindful of certain nutrients and just like trying to maintain your health in addition to following your, you know, your environmental or animal concerns or like whatever reason it is that you want to be a vegetarian or a vegan. So um, I think she has good balance to, to her content. Yeah. Um, I, I love her content too, because she's, she's a, an English, she was like an English major. She's more into kind of like journalism type stuff. Like she's not Hmm. like a health and wellness provider. Hmm. Um, So Hmm. I find that her writing's really funny. Like she has a really good voice. Like sometimes when you're reading stuff, there's like no, real voice but like when i read her stuff i like laugh like i'm laughing in like intense stuff go ahead yeah no i i i know exactly what you mean and that's part of why i like her stuff too but i just i'm gonna say a controversial thing and i don't mean to make enemies but chris presser i don't understand i've i've tried to listen to the man's podcast and he has the most dry bland boring plain white toast voice I've ever heard in my entire life. It's it's like watching paint dry, listening to him. And I, it's funny because, like, so many articles on his website are not written by him. They're yeah. contributed from, like, RDs or people who are in medical school or whatever it might be. So he has writers who do a lot of the writing on his blogs. But I just, I always kind of wonder, I'm like... Anything that's written by him, I wonder if it's that same kind of tone. Because listening to his voice, I'm just like, <sighs> right, <laughs> so right. Boring. He's very knowledgeable, so I feel terrible saying that. But I, I remember back in like 2012 when he was all the rage, or like 2013 when he was all the rage, and I was going to like paleo meetup groups, and people would talk about him. And then I, I was like, yeah, I'll check out his podcast. I listened to one episode, and I was like, I can't do it. I can't oh do God. it. I, so right. I'll use like control F and I'll just scan the art, the, the print version right. of his stuff. And I'll just like find the piece I want, read it and then be done with it. Right. Right. Anyway. Yeah. So I appreciate that Denise Menger has like a personality and a voice and has like a more dynamic, interesting writing style. Um, right. But back to zinc. I know she mentions zinc quite a bit too, and makes the case that maybe you want to eat a couple of bivalves like once a week or right. take a zinc supplement or whatever it might be. But if you want, follow this train of thought. 
If you want vitamin A to work, you're going to need zinc. If you want vitamin D to work, you're going to need vitamin A. If you want right. vitamin, if <laughs> you know, and you could keep following it down, like, you know, magnesium and then, I don't even right. know, calcium. Like, it's all this big spider web of stuff. It but is. certainly um, zinc can be useful for that induction of tolerance for the reason because it's it hangs out with vitamin A and it does a lot of stuff with vitamin A. And I think it has its own kind of claims to fame, like zinc for the immune system. Oh, my God. When COVID started, all the zinc flew off the shelves like crazy. (laughs) Um, Right. Especially neutrophils, which are your most abundant white blood cell. When you look at like a CBC, your neutrophils are like 60% of your white count. And neutrophils in particular seem like they really need a lot of zinc, uh, as well as the lymphocytes, which is your next most um, large chunk of your immune system. Right. Yeah. And I think, again, like, I think of vitamin A and zinc as being super beneficial and nourishing to the gut lining. Um, they're both they're both working there. And, and zinc helps to activate vitamin A and um, it takes takes part in uh, retinol binding protein synthesis and things yeah. like that and has different um has different, like what you said, roles with vitamin A and they definitely work together. And, um, yeah, zinc. And I think like from a deficiency standpoint, sometimes if you get labs, it might not be outright deficient, but it might be low enough to where it, like you might need a little bit of a higher level of zinc to optimize things. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I, I really like, zinc um and i've used it a lot with my clients or like making sure that they're getting enough from a multi or something like that just covering their bases from a zinc standpoint i think can be really helpful yeah i probably like most frequently um you know i'll give people some information about zinc rich foods um i'm a big fan of pumpkin seed butter have you discovered this yet i have not oh my god i have not all right I'm, this is not sponsored content, folks, but tell you what, Omega Nutrition Pumpkin Seed Butter. Mm. So good. So good. Um, I I keep one in the fridge here and what I do, so it's very roasty toasty. It's not like, you know, I'll have like peanut butter and cashew butter and sunflower seed butter. I'll have a little bit of sweetness to them. Not mm-hmm. this. It's very just like roasty toasty tasting. But... Pumpkin seeds have a fair amount of plant-based zinc. So it's not going to be absorbed as well as like red meat, but it's still some zinc and it's delicious. And I will frequently smear a little bit of that on like a piece of dark chocolate. And then I tell myself it's like a healthy peanut butter cup. Ah, I feel free to steal that. I just told a patient about that yesterday or no, a patient told me yesterday that she got the pumpkin seed butter and she was like, it's delicious. So nice. Yeah. So it's funny. I just talked about that yesterday. But I will, I'll mention two more things with zinc real quick, which is, A, we'll talk about this with the the mineral episode. Absorption gets real squirrely when we talk about minerals because everything competes with everything else. Yeah, right, right. <laughs> Swear to God. So, yeah. like, calcium and zinc can interfere with each other's absorption. Iron and zinc can interfere, interfere with each other's absorption. Copper and zinc interfere with each other's absorption. And randomly, I, I told Amy, I busted out a textbook just so I had some fun quotable stuff here. Apparently, folate can negatively impact zinc absorption, which I kind of forgot. Thank God I highlighted it in the zinc chapter of this book. But 
Yeah, folate apparently, randomly enough, um, and oxalate has the ability to in inhibit uh, zinc absorption as well. So just keep that in mind. Um, actually, yeah. ooh, juicier, juicier. Ready for this? This was not highlighted, but I caught it. Um, phytic acid. So this is like in grains and such. This is why people are advocating soaking and sprouting your grains. Um, some people, I think that's going to be a bigger deal for, but phytic acid could be an issue for zinc absorption as well. Um, oxalate, so that would be found in things like spinach, rhubarb, bran, um, almonds. We should do an episode about it eventually. Mm -hmm. And then, dun, 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 polyphenols. It says yeah. right here, polyphenols such as tannins and gallic acid in tea and coffee and certain fibers found in whole grains, fruits, and vegetables also bind zinc and inhibit its absorption. So yeah. maybe don't take your zinc with tea or coffee either. Um, yeah. But yeah, so keep that in mind as well, is that A, I find that a lot of people are not getting enough zinc, and that if they are, you might be effing up the absorption with other stuff. So I think it's right. a nice insurance policy for most people to have a multivitamin that has a bit of zinc in it, and then right. also try to get it through food. Um, yeah. And we've talked a bit about zinc cardicine. I don't remember how well the zinc is absorbed from zinc cardicine, but that is one of my favorite leaky gut healing supplements. Yeah. So. And I, and I will say one other thing about zinc too, like some people can get a little nausea from zinc. Mm -hmm. Um, especially if you're taking, like I've had some people like their zinc levels, like they're taking it from one supplement, it's in another. Like if if you look at your supplements and there could be like too much zinc, it can sometimes cause yeah. nausea. And some people are a little more sensitive to it. If you feel like you're more sensitive to it, I mean, anyway, I would make sure you're you're eating it with a meal. But if for some reason you weren't eating it with anything, um, I would probably eat a little bit and then take it sort of mid-meal because that seems to help a little bit with the nausea. Yeah. Or in smaller doses... Don't do like, you know, a bigger dose at one time. You might want to separate the doses across a longer span. Yeah. So maybe like a powdered multivitamin or just breaking up the capsules and having half and half. Um, I was going right. to say too, for if that's an issue, you might, you might also consider getting like a separate B vitamin complex and a separate right. multi-mineral complex. And then you can like take the B vitamin as is. And then just like open up the, the multi-mineral, have a little sprinkle and then take that right. and then you can kind of meter the dose a bit. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. And I think sometimes too, like if someone's taking like uh, zinc 30 milligrams or something, you can sometimes get like 15, like you can sometimes get lower mm -hmm. uh, amounts. Um, and again, probably you could open up that capsule too. Like yeah. if you were just yeah. doing a, a, a plain zinc, but yeah, yeah. I think... That's something to keep an eye on. I've had a few people get a little nauseous um, from certain zinc supplements. Uh, so I'm always a little bit aware of it. Um, yeah, I've had that happen a couple of times. One one lady threw up. I felt so oh, no. bad. I was like, no. Yeah, but we, we figured it out as time went on. But yeah, we. Um, I forget if it was from a multi or a separate zinc supplement. I forget which one it was. Mm -hmm. But same patient, when we started her on zinc carnosine, loved it so much yeah. that she was, she got her whole family to take it. She, and she was like, so some of the zinc must be absorbed because she had her whole, like her two children and her husband taking it at one point. She was like, usually we get, you know, the girls will get like, or no, it was one of her daughters. One of her teenage daughters would get like four 
colds or flus per year. And like that year, she got sick very minorly, like once. And she was like, this right. stuff is amazing. So it was just kind of funny. Like, I wonder if it was because the zinc was getting absorbed and the poor kid was zinc deficient. Or I wonder if it was like healing leaky gut. The kid had leaky gut. Right. But it was just kind of funny. But I will throw out there too, you need zinc to make stomach acid. So mm-hmm. as far as like local big deal gut stuff, right? zinc appears to be involved in the healing of the gut lining, which is why zinc harnessing is one of my favorite things for this yeah. gut kind of conversation. But also you need zinc to make stomach acid. So if you think that you have low stomach acid or you're finding yourself taking, you know, 12 or 15 pills of betaine HCL, you might need zinc. Yeah. It's not an uncommon deficiency. So that's worth exploring as well. Right. And um, we're going to talk about magnesium too. Magnesium is also needed for stomach acid because of the yeah. protein pump. So yeah. Yeah, I think those two are, are really interesting. And also magnesium can be a common deficiency because I oh, find yeah. that people just don't eat enough magnesium. It's a little bit of a harder nutrient, I think, to to get sufficient amounts of if you're not careful, or if you're kind of avoiding certain things. I feel like magnesium you could get easier on a vegetarian or a vegan diet. Yeah, I and agree. Zinc, honest to God, you really need some sort of anti-protein. <laughs> Or right. a supplement to get zinc. Mm-hmm. Um, and again, like I was a vegetarian for 11 years. Never took zinc. Never took right, B12. Right. Like never, you know, I think I checked iron at like my yearly physical or whatever. Right. Because I think they knew that much. Um, but all, you know, the other nutrients that could be deficient. Nah. Um, right. And. Here's here's another couple of fun factoids for zinc before we move on to magnesium. We'll kind of we'll go we'll go fat soluble, mineral mineral fat soluble, and we'll kind of like go in a loop of sorts. Whoa! <laughs> I know, I know, big deal. Um, similarly, from my book, and thank God I had all these highlighted. Um, cadmium, if present in high concentrations, appears to bind the sites to which zinc would normally bind and disrupts normal zinc function. Mm. And where's the other? Hold on, I found another one. Lead, if present in the body in high concentrations, uh, replaces zinc uh, in the dehydrogenase, no, dehydroctase, and diminishes heme synthesis. Mm. I knew about I knew about the heme synthesis piece with lead, but I didn't know it was because it screws up zinc. So weird. Uh, yeah. You know, keep your eyes peeled for weirdo toxicities. I know I've I've talked with people, um, you know, or we've gotten like nutrient evals done and they test for cadmium, lead, um, mercury, mercury and aluminum, I think. Yeah, and maybe that sounds tin, right. Maybe tin. But there's a couple of toxic nutrient or toxic metals that they test for on that nutrient eval. And I have seen a couple here or there where they come back with notable levels of lead or notable levels of cadmium. And we're like, Oh God. So keep that in mind too, is toxicity can further muck with this. And then one more thing on zinc. Once synthesized, I feel like such a nerd right now. Let me read from my book. (laughs) Once synthesized insulin is stored in zinc with zinc in granules in the pancreatic Mm. beta cells until it's released into the blood. Zinc deficiency decreases the insulin response, resulting in impaired glucose tolerance. Huh. And it... Zinc also appears to regulate the protein kinase 
mammalian target for rapamycin, aka mTOR, which is regulates a lot of the inflammatory process. So very fascinating for anybody who has inflammation if mTOR is involved, but also it's just kind of funny because like, what is the one mineral that people think for blood sugar management? Chromium. Chromium yeah, for sure. Chromium all yeah. day long. But right. nobody's talking about zinc. And I would wager a bet that probably a lot of people with blood sugar instability issues might have a zinc deficiency and not realize yeah. it. So other other food for thought. Um, right. But I think otherwise that's, that's about all I have to say for zinc. Super important. Hangs out with vitamin yeah. A. Yeah, I think the only other thing, it, it is important in thyroid as well. Mm-hmm. Um, I believe it helps with conversion, if I'm remembering right. Is that accurate? I could double check. I could double check, too. I have a big okay. old thyroid binder. I just did a post on it. I, I okay, believe we're gonna it helps. Who can find oh, first? God. Oh, God. <laughs> oh, no. We can do it. We can do it. Sink. The thing is, like, where in this giant thyroid binder would this be? Right. Where? And this, you know what? I don't know about you two. This is the beauty. Okay. This is I found the beauty. it. Ah. I found it. I found it. You beat me. All right. What is it? Tell okay. us the deeps. It says it converts. It it plays a part in the conversion of T4 to T3. Okay. Um. And actually, yeah, now that you're saying that, you are correct. Because I know I had that on a handout somewhere for my patients. Um, see, yeah. this is the glory in a way. I don't know if you hold the same opinion. The beauty of really being honest to God holistic is that you almost have this weird permission to forget about some of the nuances things. Right. Because it's just like, I want to optimize zinc because you need damn zinc. <laughs> like, right, right. You, you right. almost, and like, just trust me, it's important. Right? Like, there's right. almost this little element of that that's so beautiful. Um. Just trust me, it's important. Eat right. Your, eat your oysters or whatever well, it is. So. And like I said earlier, like this all could probably be boiled down to eat a wide variety of food, eat yeah. a balanced plate. Um, and again, there's some nuance to it because like certain nutrients, like I said, probably zinc, again, could still become deficient for a variety of reasons. Oh, and, and even... <laughs> And magnesium, again, if, if you're not e- eating enough leafy greens or so, things like that. But for the most part, if you're eating a pretty diverse diet, you you limit the risk of deficiency. Um, yeah, I, I think that's broadly true. And again, it's this beautiful permission to be like really broad and nonspecific. Because right. again, by being broad and nonspecific in this instance, and just like covering your bases nutritionally... You don't have to worry about the nuancy little bite right. things because then you won't be mm. deficient. For sure. So you're covering all these weird, again, like you can, you can do a PubMed search, right. zinc and colon. I'm sure you'll find, you're going <laughs> right. to find a bunch of stuff. Zinc and toenails. I'm sure there's stuff out there. Like just ha- have a heyday if you want to go that route. But let's segue over to magnesium because again, like, it's another mineral, big deal. Um, I don't. I think I've seen. I saw a post on your Instagram recently about magnesium too, because I remember I was kind of like skimming the comments, and I remember you talked about magnesium glycinate in particular. But again, 
pretty common deficiency. I forget the stats, but like half the American population right. somewhere in that ballpark is deficient. For sure. Um, it is sure. getting harder and harder to acquire through the diet because the soil is becoming really depleted. It is more frequently going to be found in plant foods as opposed to animal protein, unlike zinc. So that's you've got that at least going for magnesium. Um, but I think one of the, the two things that people probably know magnesium for is helping with sleep and helping with pooping. Those yeah. are probably the two big things that people are more aware of as far as magnesium. But with that, go ahead and start us off on the magnesium topic, if you would. Yeah. So I think magnesium, I mean, it's a cofactor in so many different reactions in the body. Again, kind of like zinc or any of these nutrients, you could probably look up something magnesium related and see it connected to something yeah. you didn't know about. Yeah. Um, yeah. I think from a gut standpoint, uh, magnesium's going to be at play in helping to relax muscles a, a, a bit, and mm-hmm. it helps turn off the stress response. Mm-hmm. Um, so I always think of it, too, as being helpful, like, this seems like really overly simplistic, but helping the gut relax a bit, not having tension there. Um, it also plays roles in bone health as well. Um again, with it being connected to the vitamin D situation. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I think it, it's going to play a role in metabolism. It's going to play a role in a bunch of different areas. Um, but yeah, I think in particular, what I see is people doing magnesium to help with constipation yeah. um, and sleep. That's probably the, the areas. I think there are some people that do it for hormone and liver support because it's mm. really important for liver uh, as yeah. well. Yeah. Um, all the, all of the minerals, I would argue, minus, I don't know about iodine. I don't know if iodine is super important for the liver beyond like thyroid hormone is important for everything and therefore, but, um, like selenium, zinc, magnesium, molybdenum, like there's a lot of minerals are important for the detox pathways. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Let me ask you this. Yeah. Sorry, totally, totally no, go ahead. cut you off. That was probably a really good thought, too. Um, have you found magnesium glycinate to be helpful for constipation, or do you think it's isolated to magnesium citrate like natural calm? Typically, I see, I sort of think of magnesium glycinate tends to be better absorbed. Um, I typically think of magnesium citrate as being more of like a, having more of a laxative effect from what I've seen. Mm -hmm. Um, I haven't seen quite as strong with magnesium glycinate. I've heard some people, and I should probably explore this in a little bit more detail, say that you need like a pretty, a higher dose of magnesium glycinate. Mm -hmm. Um, and again, I haven't sussed through all the the reasons why, but I've had some like other dietitians say you need a pretty high dose of magnesium glycinate in comparison to other forms. Um, But I think magnesium glycinate can be helpful. Like I I see that potentially raising some of the, the uh, raising magnesium levels internally a little bit better than magnesium citrate is what I've found. I don't know if you've seen that or not. It's funny, like, it, um, I'll, I'll throw this out there too. I've seen this with magnesium and I've seen this with vitamin D, where mm-hmm. 
you know, we, we identify a deficiency on blood work or an insufficiency, one or the other, start somebody on a supplement, give them, you know, a month or two or three, depending on what the nutrient is, remeasure the thing and it doesn't budge. We go, huh, all right, let's switch products. We switch to a different product or a different brand, right? remeasure, and then it, it rebounds. It's interesting because, like, in this case, both of the products look great on paper. Right. So, for example, like, I carry, um, like, I remember a patient, her vitamin D was low. I started her on, I think it was, uh, I get them mixed up. It's either Douglas Labs or Da Vinci Labs. They have a product called ADK. So it's vitamin D, vitamin A, vitamin K, all together, all in one. And it's 5,000 IUs of vitamin D. Had her start on that. I'm pretty sure it was that one. Remeasured a month or two or three later. No change. Mm. Like barely a change. And I was like, that's weird. So we just went, well, let's switch up the product and see what happens. Switched her over, I think, to Designs for Health um, and Vitamin D Supreme. Same exact dose. 5,000 IUs of vitamin D. Same damn dose. And then her vitamin D level went up. And I think I've seen it in reverse for another patient, but I can't swear to it. But the same thing with magnesium. I carry magnesium glycinate and I carry um, orthomolecular has one that's like three different types. Okay. I think, I, think I know what you're talking about. Yeah. It's magnesium it's citrate, called. glycinate, and well, I can look real quick, but, but it's like three really? types. Yeah. It, I don't think it's oxide because I don't care for magnesium oxide. Um, mm-hmm. Hold on. Hold on, orthomolecular, magnesium, what is the name of it? Reacted magnesium. That's the name of it. Um, So similarly, I've had patients where I start them on magnesium glycinate, remeasure, no change, switch them to this one, and then we get a change. And I've seen it in reverse where I start somebody, because then, because then, you know, after it happens one time, I'm like, oh, okay, this is the better supplement. Right. So then right. I just start using that one instead. And then I find that I go back to, so it's, it's so bizarre. I don't, I really don't know if there is a better absorbed and a worse absorbed version right. of any vitamin or mineral. I think it might just be bio-individual and we yeah. don't really know yet. But to answer the previous question, it is dimagnesium malate, magnesium citrate, and magnesium lysinate, glycinate, chelate mm. is what that one is from orthomolecular. But it's so odd. And I, because of this, I have some patients who, like, you you could take their magnesium glycinate from their cold dead hands. And I have <laughs> other people who could take, you could take the reacted magnesium from their cold dead hands. <laughs> Right. And they're not giving it up. And it's just very interesting how it seems to be somewhat individual for the person. But you you literally cannot figure that out until you try them and see what happens. Yeah. Um, I think that's a good point. I mean, you know, I, I think there is, a, there's so much we don't know. Yeah. About bio-individuality and things like that. So yep. that's All a right, good guys, point. that's the end of the podcast. See you later. I, we don't know. <laughs> I also am getting very hot. So give me a second. I'm going to take off this. This it's getting hot in here, so take off all your clothes. Oh my gosh. Okay, that feels better. That's all I know, people. That's all you get from me. You just missed my song, Amy. You missed well, it. Well, I heard you, I heard like um, whispers of it. Oh, good, good, good. I'm glad you enjoyed. All right, now we're both in t shirts. We're rocking. Yes. We're rocking and we're both wearing 
Woo! Look at that. Twins. This was not coordinated, people. Um, yeah, okay, so magnesium, back to, back to the conversation. Um, <laughs> remember these days from three weeks ago? Oh, I missed you so much. I know. Our little tangents. I know. Um, but yeah, I think magnesium is super important. Again, if you want vitamin D to work well, you're going to want to have some magnesium mm-hmm. in, in the boat with you. Uh, whether that comes from a supplement or from your food, magnesium is usually very underrepresented in multivitamins. Oh, um, for sure. For sure. Like, you'll look at the bottle, it'll be like 2% of the daily value, and you're like, okay. Well, and useless. it's crazy. I think it might be like a, a a powder. Like, you need a lot more of the powder or something. Yeah. Because it's such a commonly deficient thing. I, I don't know why it's not in there in full I also, amount. I also wonder if it's because calcium is also very left out of vitamins. Yeah. And I wonder if they leave both of them out because they're so interconnected with each other that it's like, ah, we might as well not give people magnesium if they're not also doing calcium. Right. And you don't know, like, for people who eat dairy, the likelihood of calcium deficiency is going to be lower versus somebody like me who does need to supplement because I haven't eaten dairy in 10 years. Right. Maybe it's a calcium thing. Maybe it's because it would take up so much more of the bit. There are some multivitamins like from pure encapsulations and vital nutrients that are six a day. Six. Oh my God. Six I know. Pills. Don't even get me started on this. It's bad with, um, with prenatals. Cause I'm oh, like yeah. potentially starting to try to have a, a child. Um, but with prenatals, pills all day. it's like, there's some, like some that I really like, but they're eight caps a day. It's like, I'm not going to take eight caps a day, especially if like, when there's bees in there, like you can only really take them earlier. Yeah. So. And what's bizarre to me too, is that there are other brands like, okay, my two favorite multivitamins bar none are both from Seeking Health. They have an optimal multivitamin minus one and the optimal multivitamin methyl one. Both of them are one a day. Right. And you look at the label and they have plenty of all the nutrients. So I just wonder with these other ones, I'm like, what the F are you putting in these? Right. That you fill up six or eight capsules. Right. Clearly it's not necessary because Seeking Health miraculously crammed it all into one freaking <laughs> capsule. And right. another one I like is from Thorne and it's a two a day. So it's like, right. all right, what, what are you people doing if it's six or eight a day? I don't for the life of me understand that. Um, right. But yeah. No, I agree. I, it's it's wild to me. I, I don't get it either. But yeah, I, I it is underrepresented. It's probably important to make sure your diet's sufficient or yeah, to supplement accordingly. Yeah. Um, and also, one other thing about magnesium in terms of vitamin D, we're talking about how like certain how like if you're taking too much of just vitamin D, it could lead to more toxicity than if you're pairing things together. Mm-hmm. Um, magnesium help pre- helps to prevent vitamin D toxicity as well. Mm-hmm. Um, so just an FYI, and again, like they're paired together in a number of different ways, but just another reason why having sufficient magnesium is helpful when you're trying to up vitamin D. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and... To our point earlier, too, if you take a boatload of vitamin D, because everybody on the internet says it's so important, (laughs) and it is, 
But if you only take vitamin D, like I did for years, I didn't, I right. didn't take vitamin K, I didn't take vitamin A, I didn't take magnesium, calcium, all of that, you know, but I was just pumping vitamin D mm-hmm. out the wazoo. So I probably also created all of these other deficiencies because I was bringing up this one nutrient into right. isolation. And then maybe I was throwing in some other stuff in like a multivitamin or something if I was lucky. But um, yeah, I think the balance, if you're bringing up one, you're going to want to pay attention to all of these together. And that's why they're in the same episode. And we wanted to talk about this all together. Right. But All right. So um, magnesium is needed to make serotonin, which is a precursor for melatonin. So like serotonin is involved in motility in the gut which is part of why magnesium helps you poop. Um, it also could be helpful for mood because serotonin is like the antidepressant neurochemical. Right. And it's helpful for sleep, probably in part because you need magnesium to make melatonin and melatonin is the sleepy, sleepy time neuropeptide. So that is what signals to your brain. Oh, Hey, it's bedtime. Let's start to get drowsy. So I agree. I think I, I really like magnesium glycinate, you know, around dinner or bedtime in particular and kind of like load you up a bit. Right. Um, and the glycine that it's bound to, mm-hmm. I think, you know, that can help with like GABA receptors and winding down the stress response. So your brain isn't keeping you awake, chattering with all of your anxiety. Um, so I do like that, that form, but then the serotonin and melatonin in the gut too is helpful for controlling local inflammation and regulating motility and keeping you pooping. So magnesium is very talented. And then you had mentioned stomach acid as well. Mm-hmm. I don't remember if, if magnesium is needed for like pancreatic enzymes or bioflow. It wouldn't surprise me. Right. But, um, it wouldn't surprise me if that was a piece of this puzzle as well. And then the muscle relaxation bit to your right. point. Yeah. Should we segue into vitamin D? We shall. Yes. Lead the way, my darling. Lead the way. Yeah. Yeah. I think vitamin D, vitamin D has been like the, the, I want to say like centerfold for all the, the fat the, soluble. The golden child. Right. Or the golden child for all the, the fat soluble. Which I think like, again, vitamin D is great, but you don't want to leave out some of these other, other guys. And I, I think most of the time, what, people are talking about with vitamin D. I mean, I think we, people understand the immune component at this point, that there's an immune system component. People definitely, I feel like, understand the calcium absorption component. So if you need to absorb, or vitamin D helps with the absorption of calcium. Um, And I think, again, like like with vitamin A, it's going to have a major effect at the gut lining and be really anti-inflammatory. Um. I, I think vitamin D, like everything else, there's a synergy with some of the other fat-soluble nutrients. Like I think yeah, K2 yeah. can be yeah, important yeah. in the discussion as well, um, especially when you're talking about bone health. Um, yes. But yeah, I think it's always interesting to me because it's like the one thing that I feel like a lot of people are taking, like just yeah. kind of across the board, like what you were saying before, like when I look yeah. over new clients like supplements they're taking it's vitamin d is often in in the mix and um but yeah tell me a little bit about your your thoughts on vitamin d yeah i i think of it it's it's a very talented vitamin as they all are but Mm -hmm. 
I usually think about it from the angle of um, immune health and like mm-hmm. immune system function as far yeah. as like warding off infections. And for that matter, you know, we're recording this in 2021. There's more and more data coming out that vitamin D yeah. serum levels are related to COVID severity or mortality or both. And I've seen some studies like a more recent one. It was like 800 people who were hospitalized with COVID and the people who were given vitamin D supplementation when they're in the hospital. So these people are already very sick. They're probably ragingly deficient in vitamin D. And just like as a Hail Mary at the finish line, before they kicked the bucket, they were supplemented with vitamin D versus a placebo. And the the decrease in mortality amongst the people who were supplemented last minute with vitamin D was striking. I think it was like a 78% reduction in mortality from COVID. Dang. Yeah. That's and it was wild. like, you know, eight, 900 people. So it was a decent enough size. Um, and again, like taking vitamin D for a week is not going to cure a deficiency <laughs> overnight. But right. the fact that even like, you know, I, I forget if it was like a week or two weeks, even that little bit of supplementation after the people had already gotten COVID, they were already hospitalized. They were already very sick. The fact that that prevented deaths in a lot of the cases is like, <laughs> nuts. yeah. So it's, I mean, not surprising to me at least, but it's, it's great. So, um, you know, vitamin D is very important for immune system function from the angle of critter patrol, both Mm -hmm. antiviral and here's the thing for anybody with SIBO or dysbiosis or candida, vitamin D turns on genes that then tell your body to produce antimicrobial peptides, Mm -hmm. which are like your own homemade antibiotics. And these are made in all of the epithelial linings, including the gut. So if you want to be able to manage your own critters and you want to get off the damn oregano oil or the berberine and you don't want to be stuck on antimicrobial herbs or rifaximin for the rest of your life, you're going to want some vitamin D. And then that tells those panath cells and the immune cells to secrete antimicrobial peptides. And then that helps control your critters. And then you're not at war with your critters so much. So I think vitamin A as well, but so I think about it from the stance of like helping your immune system fight off pathogens and critters via those antimicrobial peptides. And it helps the immune system because it dampens inflammation. That same STAT3 gene that I mentioned with vitamin A, vitamin D inhibits that as well. So since the immune system is a big focal point for what we call inflammation, and it's the immune cells that are churning up this inflammatory soup, inhibiting inflammation or inflammatory genes at the immune system, immune cell level is really important. Um, yeah. So that's a big thing. I mean, I was just researching over the weekend, even, and it works on inflammation in other ways. So even not as related to the immune system, um, a lot of people are familiar with NSAIDs, so like ibuprofen, Aleve, um, you know, they're over-the-counter painkillers, or even there's prescription versions. And most people know, you know, if you have a headache or if you have an ache or a pain, you could take an ibuprofen and that should help. And it's anti-inflammatory. And the way those drugs work is that they block the activity of the COX enzymes, mm-hmm. COX. Uh, there's COX-1 and COX-2. And depending on the drug, it might tinker with one or both or the other. 
well, when I was researching this a little bit, because my, my parents' dog is getting a little older and has arthritis, Aww. and they were prescribed an NSAID. And my mom was worried about GI bleeds or gut problems. So I was researching that particular NSAID. And then she was like, well, if you know any alternatives, I'm all ears. And I found some articles that vitamin D inhibits, the, I think it's COX-2, the COX-2 enzyme and it's anti-inflammatory having to do with prostaglandin synthesis, which is kind of a whole other flavor yeah. of the inflammation cascade. So you could also not have as much of a need for NSAIDs with things like arthritis and joint pain if you make sure you have adequate vitamin D levels. So Right. Yeah. And I... Go ahead. No, you. Oh, I was going to say, I was also just like scanning some studies before this. And, um, you know, I had heard about this. I just was kind of revisiting it that, you know, vitamin D, when they had people supplement who were deficient, Mm -hmm. it helps with diversity. So even Mm -hmm. like killing critters that you don't want around, super important. But it also provides a better environment for diversity and it also tends to raise some of the good microbes like it has a microbial Mm -hmm. modulating effect where it probably helps with the the sketchier bugs and helps some of helps the good bugs take over a bit more um which is like opening up that space right which i think is really really helpful and i i would say you know most people are going to get their vitamin d from the sun or from outdoor light like i think i think when I remember in school learning about that in in my dietetics program, that most people need to get some level of outdoor light exposure. Mm -hmm. Um, I mean, certainly you could supplement and that could make sure you're sufficient. But uh, I think there's there's a outdoor light deficiency in a lot of individuals if they're inside. I'm guilty. Yeah. And and getting outside, it has a bunch of different effects, um, not just vitamin D. I mean, it helps to regulate circadian rhythms and things like yeah. that. Uh, so the more you can get outside and it, it's going to depend based on skin tone, like how long you might yeah. need to be outside. Um, actually, uh, Chris Masterjohn uh, talks about how different skin tones might need different levels of vitamin D, like they convert it more like people with darker skin tones have a better conversion rate. So they might be okay having lower levels of like Hmm. uh, blood levels of vitamin D compared to like me, like super pale white, uh, white girl. I was going to say, I say this with love, but you and I are like the the shade of toothpaste. So we're like Casper, Casper level white. We could synthesize like you wouldn't believe. Right. So, but I think, you know, we're so into sunscreen and I always tell my friends, like whenever we're having like a pool day or something, I'm like, I'm damned if I do, damned if I don't uh, with sunscreen. Cause it's like, you want to have some level of unprotected, like unadulterated sun on your skin. There's a line where, you know, it makes sense to put sunscreen on. You don't want to get damaged either, but uh you know, if you're constantly putting sunscreen on every time you go outside, that could be preventing vitamin D absorption yeah. um, and negatively affecting that status. But I think, you know, getting outside most days, and even if it's like cloudy, some people are like, well, the sun's not out. Like you're still probably, you're going to get some vitamin oh, D. Oh, you can still burn on a cloudy day for right. sure. So I think that that's huge. I mean, you certainly can get um, vitamin D from your diet 
too. Um, but I find that m- most people rely more on sun from what I remember hearing in my dietetics program than they do food. Yeah. Well, I think I remember like, like, okay, mushrooms might have, you know, three or 400 IU or something. Right. Um, yeah. And that's worthy of noting, noting too, the RDA for vitamin D is set absurdly low mm-hmm. at 400 or 600 IUs per day, which is preposterous versus with supplementation, I find a lot of people, the sweet spot is either like 2,000 or 5,000 IUs per day with supplements versus, you know, some people take 10 and get away with 10. But I think like most people, somewhere between 2,000 and 5,000 is pretty reasonable. So, Mm -hmm. you know, if you, and I've, I've talked to friends even, like one of my best friends, she was, I asked if she was on vitamin D and she said, no. But I take a multivitamin and it says it has 100%. I'm like, you know, how many IU? 400. Yeah, that's, that's not good. Let's yeah. get you on some more. Um, so keep that in mind is that you need more than the label is going to indicate. It's going to look like you're overdosing, but I promise you're not. Um, at least not at the levels I just mentioned, 2,000 or 5,000. And you're not really going to overdose on vitamin D from the sun. I think your body's right. smart enough to shut that shit down if you do start to overdose from sun exposure. And you'd be a bronze goddess anyway. So well, at, I'd at just some be, point. I'd just be red and then turn back to white. I have to I have to just pace myself. Like in the beginning of the season, I have to be careful not to get more than like 20 or 30 minutes. But then once I get a bit of a base tan, I'm pretty okay. And then I can go right. outside for like an hour with no sunscreen. And I just mm-hmm. bronze up a bit more. So it's but it's very calculated and very, very tricky. But I yeah. hate putting on sunscreen because the hippie dippy natural sunscreen never rubs in right. ever. And I'm not going to put like the phthalates and parabens and crap on my body. So yeah. I'm always at war with like, all right, do I put on the suntan lotion and look like Casper because it's not right. rubbing in? Or do right. I risk it and get like a teeny bit of a burn? Um, right. Yeah. But sure. um, I, I agree. I think sunshine is the most important and i'm guilty of that too i sit on my duff here in this back room with no sun way too much and i need to get back in the habit of walking on my lunch break um but there, like there's construction out like just a stone's throw away from my office right now so when i go out it's all like construction noise and clouds of dust so i'm like right, and right. i go back in also i'm lazy um not even gonna hide that fact um but yeah i think i need to get back in the rhythm of getting vitamin d the the sunshine method instead of yeah. the pills. But, um, oh, another couple of thoughts with D is that vitamin D, again, with the anti-inflammatory thing, vitamin D has been shown to reduce CRP, C-reactive protein, by like 25 or 30%. Mm-hmm. So if you have elevated CRP and you want to drop it, take vitamin D and make sure that your levels are good. But then I would I would argue that I think vitamin D and vitamin A have the potential to help with motility. Because if you think, no tissue in the body likes inflammation. But sure as heck, if there's one thing that hates inflammation the most, it's going to be your nervous <laughs> system. Right. Neurons have a hard time functioning and doing their job in an inflammatory environment. And the thing that runs the motility show is neurons. Yeah. Or are neurons. So if you want your neurons to be healthy for your gut-brain axis and your vagus nerve and your motility, 
you're going to want to try to inhibit or control inflammation to the best of your ability. And two of the things that could do that are vitamin A and vitamin D and their associated mineral pals. Right. So I, I actually think for some people getting vitamin D and vitamin A at, to adequate levels could be helpful for motility even. Yeah. So for, what it's for sure. No, I think that's a really research with that, but I, it's a theory. Well, when you open up your research exactly, I facility, we will test yep. that theory. We need to start That's making right. a list right. of things that we wish to I test. Know. We should add that to the Google folder that we share. We, we should. Keep a running tally of that. Right. Yep. But uh, but yeah, I think that is, is important to note. And also with the fat-soluble vitamins, keep in mind, you're going to absorb these way more efficiently if you take them with a meal that contains mm-hmm. fat. Mm-hmm. So kind of, you know, let's hearken back a little bit. Let's let's be a little bit playful here. Say you are a raw vegan. You you don't eat nothing cooked. You don't <laughs> eat nothing with fat. Right. Not even, you know, you don't eat your olive oil, avocado oil, whatever, because you're a fat phobic raw vegan eater. I don't know. I, I don't mean to insult anybody. But let's say that you like eat a fruititarian, like fruititarian. Yeah, let's example. go with the ultimate. Let's say that is your eating pattern right now mm-hmm. for whatever reason. And then you hear us talking about vitamin A and you measure your levels. And despite your boatloads of carrots, your vitamin A is in the toilet, poop pun intended, and your beta carotene is fine. And you go, man, this is going to be the ticket for me. <laughs> and then you go out and you buy a vitamin A supplement and you take it with your big old plate of fruit. You just be aware you're going to need a heck of a lot more vitamin A like superhuman doses if you want to absorb any of that because you don't have any fat to emulsify it and carry it and to stimulate bile secretion. And you need all of that to absorb the vitamin A. I know with D, you absorb like 70% more of your vitamin D if you take it with a meal with fat. So Mm -hmm. probably the same thing is true for A and also fish oil for that matter. Um, But yeah, just keep that in mind is you ideally want to take these with some fat. And you should be getting fat at every meal, but keep that in mind if you like eat cereal in the morning. Right. Cereal with skim milk. Yeah. And then you take vitamin D. Like, you know, you might not absorb a ton of it. You're better off eating eggs or Right. Like sausage. if you have more of a to-go, like even if you had like something yeah. small for breakfast versus like maybe yeah. your lunch yeah. meal's bigger. Yeah. And I actually don't think you need too much fat. Like it's not like you have to be like, oh, I have to let, like load this up with olive oil or anything like that. But it should yeah. have like... A normal amount of fat. Yeah, um, something at least. Right, right. Yeah. Yeah, you don't have to be guzzling the olive oil. You're like, right. I'm keto, baby. <laughs> like, I'm going to absorb this vitamin A. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it would probably help, but I think it's overkill. Right. Um, but that's, you know, it's it's worthy of your attention because, again, like there's so many things that will interfere with absorption. And again, to be uh, repetitive here. If you eat a wide variety of foods and you're very flexible and open-minded with your diet, then you probably don't have to worry about these these things quite so much. Or like if you if you're a person that eats a different breakfast a couple days a week. So like sometimes I'll eat eggs, sometimes I'll do eggs with toast, sometimes I'll do eggs with toast and avocado, sometimes I'll do yogurt with granola. Um Sometimes, sometimes I'll do a, a veggie burger patty with an egg on top. Whoa, that's boss. That's boss. Uh-huh. Um, 
sometimes I'll do sausage and like a fruit. It depends, but like I don't have a standard breakfast mm-hmm. so much, or like sometimes it's a smoothie. But but if you're a person who again doesn't have the diversity in your diet, and it's just like nope, it's Cabin Crunch every morning. End of story. Well, then you're if you have a diet that's more like that, or meals that are very rigid, and it's the same thing each time you eat that meal. Right. You probably have to pay attention to some of this nuancey stuff a little bit more than somebody who's eating different breakfasts, different lunches, different dinners, you know, a couple of times a week. I would say my most frequent is eggs with like dairy-free cheese or avocado with it, but sometimes I'll mix it up. Yeah, I love eggs. My standard breakfast, like the the golden child is the eggs, I think. Yeah. Love it. Love me some eggs. Delish. Well, all right. Well, let's, uh, like I said, I'm not so much an expert in these, but I'll I'll wrap us up with the last two fat solubles because we're not going to neglect any of the children here, not on this podcast. Um, vitamin K, particularly K2, could segue from vitamin D because while vitamin D helps you absorb more calcium, it's vitamin mm-hmm. K2 that tells the calcium where to go, namely yep. bones and teeth, not arteries and soft tissues. So that's that's really important. That's part of why we're advocating vitamin K2 with your D now. Um, I don't know off the top of my head. I don't know about the immune implications or the gut implications of K deficiency. Um, I just know from like an overall health perspective and a, hey, you want good bones and teeth and right. you don't want to put calcium deposits in weird places perspective. I usually have people pair vitamin K2 with the D. And right. take it in a in a product together, um, and then K one is more famous for the blood clotting bit. Mm-hmm. But keep in mind again, it's kind of like the vitamin A conversation. Theoretically, you should be able to consume a boatload of leafy vegetables and get a lot of vitamin K one, and then your microbiome should be able to convert that into K two and give you enough K two. But most of our microbiomes are shot to the point where we don't do that super efficiently anymore. So I think it's worthwhile for people to take some K2, especially if you're in a country like the United States where, let's face it, we don't eat a lot of leafy greens. We sure as heck don't eat natto. Although when I go to Japan really? someday... Really? I'm just kidding. When I go to Japan someday, I will try natto. I've, I have heard it is a very stinky, stinky food, but yeah. I'm excited to try it someday. I've heard it's nasty, but I've been trying to It looks it. gross. It, it looks like a big old booger. But I'm going to try it because I'm going to give it a shot. Um, but yeah, if, if you want to weigh in anymore with K, I would just say that similarly, if you're a vegetarian or a vegan, don't don't fool yourself into thinking that you're guaranteed to be okay with K2 because you eat the leafy greens. Right. You could have a conversion issue, but it appears to be less about your genetics and more about your microbiome and how healthy they are. And... You know, we can do things later in our lives to try to favor diversity and gut microbiome health. But if you're like me and you've had a ton of antibiotics in your in your young life, there are just some things that are gone. Like I look at like yeah. a Thrive test for me and I'm, I'm like looking for certain bacteria and I'm like, nope, that's gone. That's gone. That's <laughs> gone. Fuck my life. That's gone. Yeah. And it's on repeated tests. So... You know, you can revive something if it's on the brink of death, but you can't bring back something that's extinct. 
So if you, if you led like a standard American life with a lot of antibiotics and pesticides and microbiome abuse, and now you're like in your twenties or your thirties, and now you're a vegan and you're like, yeah, my microbiome's healthy because I'm a vegan. I want to believe that, but there might be some stuff that's just gone. So you might need to compensate for that by supplementing with vitamin K2 or eating stinky natto, one or the other. Yeah. I know eggs have, have a decent amount of K2 as well. But yeah, I think, I think that you're right. Especially if, if you are someone that's concerned about bone health in particular, or even like cardiovascular health, because it helps prevent calcification. Um, but yeah, I, I agree with everything you're saying. I, I don't know of any gut health related things, but maybe it just hasn't come to the surface quite yet. I think it's, it's behind, I think it's behind the, the curve. Like I, I, there's a K2 expert. I forget what her name is. She's a dietitian. Um, and she says, you know, the research is probably 15 years behind D. Oh, did you find something? I did. I did. You saw my face. I got so excited. Okay. Continue your thought in that I'm going to rock your world. I think, I think I concluded it. Just tell me. I can't <laughs> wait now. Um, okay. Again, to our point. Hold on. Okay. Um, to our earlier point, you can type in anything on PubMed yeah. <laughs> and you can get something. So what I did, all I did, starting point, I said, I typed in vitamin K2 intestinal. And then I narrowed my search to the last five years. And I haven't read it yet because obviously I just found it. But 2017, World, Gastroenterolo- World Journal of Gastroenterology. Subclinical atherosclerosis is linked to small intestinal bacterial overgrowth via vitamin K2 dependent mechanisms. Oh my gosh. Oh, that sounds good. I'm going to save that tab for later. And then another one, really quick search on PubMed, 2016, uh, menaquinone 4, vitamin K2, upregulates expression of human intestinal alkaline phosphatase in cacao 2 cells. Um, and alkaline phosphatase seems to be involved in, uh, like, LPS mm-hmm. binding, like something to do with LPS. I forget exactly what I've read about that. So K2 might be important for your gut in ways that we are just beginning right. to understand. But oh, that, that SIBO study sounds juicy. Yes. Um, so there's probably links. We just didn't know them and we didn't bone up enough for this episode. Right. We'll do, we'll do a fat soluble vitamins part two sometime in the distant future. How about that? Uh, cause we'll probably go off on a tangent on this one later. Both mm-hmm. of us. Um, but last but not least, vitamin E. I think the thing, vitamin E is most famous for skin, if anything. Yeah. Um, you know, I know like, uh, a friend in grad school, I remember if she got a zit, Mamie would like dab vitamin E. You know, she would break open a gel cap and squeeze a little bit on and dab it on. Um, my mom, for for a while, though, she was telling her doctors that she had really dry skin and they told her, oh, go to CVS and get a vitamin E supplement. What I will say about vitamin E is that it's like the forgotten stepchild right. of all of these, it's of fierce. all the vitamins ever. Yeah, yeah it's, it's, it's really pitiful, but it's still important. The thing is, we have bastardized vitamin E so much. So when you look at a vitamin or 99% of supplements, it'll say vitamin E, but that's alpha tocopherol. If you look at real vitamin E from food, like the good stuff, 
there's four tocopherols and four tocotrienols. Mm-hmm. They're all important. They're all part of what we call vitamin E. But we took these eight compounds that have synergy and beauty and complexity, and then we sucked out one. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> Kisses. Yeah. We, we sucked out the one, and then we learned how to purify it and mass produce it, and then that's what we put in the supplements. Right. So, you know, it's it's not that a little bit of alpha-tocopherol is bad. It is part of vitamin E, but it's not really vitamin E. And there have been some studies, I think if I remember correctly, it has to do with prostate cancer and I think maybe lung cancer. But there have been some studies in more recent years where they look at large cohorts of people who have kids, again, I think prostate and lung, and they give them a vitamin E supplement, quote unquote, alpha-tocopherol, because it's an antioxidant. And they give these people supplemental vitamin E in that it actually was associated with poorer outcomes and more death in these people. Now, how that's all working, I don't know. But it, it goes to show you that humans are not nearly as clever as we think we are. And sucking out that one part of an molecule complex thing was probably not the smartest thing to do. Um, They do have supplements that have like gamma tocopherol, for example. And I know that's pretty anti-inflammatory. Sometimes I will use that as part of like a mitochondrial healing protocol. Right. Um, I know like Alex Vasquez has talked about using gamma tocopherol for that purpose for a while. Um, But that is the entirety of what I know about vitamin E. Yeah, I mean, it's definitely, it has antioxidant effects. I think, again, it is something that it doesn't get the airtime as as no. much as all the other fat-soluble nutrients. Let's, um, I'm going to do a PubMed search. Let's see if we can yes, do the same magical thing with vitamin E. You Go ahead. You can talk for a minute. I'm going to, uh, I'll let you know if I, I find something good. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, but I think that. Uh, from a vitamin E standpoint, um, like what you were saying, the, there's so much synergy in the, in the natural vitamin E that you lose if you're just isolating the one, the one alpha tocopherol versus getting the eight unique different bits and bits of this, bits of that, bits of this versus just the one singular, more synthetic now, uh, nutrient. And I am finding some research, again, to prove our point. You could type anything in PubMed and vitamin plus structure. Um, and you're going to find something. But yeah. let's see. Okay. Yeah, there's some. I'm not. It. I. You know, it's funny. In the top 10 items on PubMed, I was gifted that beautiful, beautiful article on K. So now I'm spoiled. But, right. you know, I scrolled a little further. But all right. 2019, dietary vitamin E affects small intestinal histomorphology, digestive enzyme activity, and the expression of nutrient transporters by inhibiting proliferation of intestinal epithelial cells within the jejunum in the weaned piglet. So, animal model, but nonetheless. Um, I have 27. Go ahead. Couple more. Uh, 2020, vitamin E, parentheses, alpha-tocopherol consumption influences gut microbiota composition. Uh, again, I think it's, uh, yeah, this is a mouse model. Uh, one more. 
Vitamin E, alpha and gamma tocopherol mitigate colitis, protect intestinal barrier function, and modulate the gut microbiota in mice. That's 2021. That's really new. Yeah. And then, uh, yeah, so it, it does look like there's some interaction mm-hmm. with the gut microbiota and with the gut lining. It's just that E isn't getting as much airtime. I really feel like we need to do a sequel to this in a couple of weeks now after we bone up on E and K for yeah. a while. Do you remember when we thought this was going to be a short podcast? I know. Bless our hearts. Yeah. Do you know how long we've been talking? It's it's like going on two t- hours. Yeah. Yeah. We, dear people, we thought we were going to record two podcast episodes today and boy, were we wrong. <laughs> like as usual, as yeah. usual. We have no perception of this. We should have known. Um, but anyway, yeah. So we'll, we will revisit E and K because mm-hmm. I do feel like we didn't do them justice. But it's okay. I think we gave a little a little sampling of it. And then in a couple of weeks, we'll revisit this. But I do want to visit B vitamins and minerals first, because I think those are going to be more impactful for more people from our current understanding. Um, and again, we'll talk about the dreaded MTHFR and some of the SNPs. And we'll, we'll get a little bit, we'll spill the tea. We'll get a little bit hot and bothered about that one. Um, mm-hmm. But yeah, any closing remarks? Um, other than diversity, diversity, diversity. Right. I, again, I think, you know, getting, if you're suspicious, you can get it checked out. I definitely work with a provider if you're wanting to supplement, um, that can help make sure that you're taking a balanced approach to to some of these things and getting outside and getting sun. I think those are the major ones I would, I would say. Yeah. I think, most everybody could get away with taking a multi right and taking like a few thousand IUs of D and maybe a few thousand IUs of A or like cod liver oil. I feel like everybody could pretty much get away with that much and be right. very, very safe. Um, and, and sun. But yeah, if you want to do like very large doses of any of these things, then I would have your blood levels checked. Um, I think most people could get away with, pretty hefty doses of magnesium on yeah. their own without a lot of supervision. I would say zinc, I would hesitate to say that with. Right. Because again, zinc, for all that we talked about One Direction, that calcium and copper and folate uh, and iron inhibit zinc absorption, the opposite is true too. Right. So if you eat, if you take a zinc supplement with your iron supplement, good luck. Or if you take zinc with, I don't even know, like a whole boatload of spinach and you're trying to absorb the iron from the spinach, good luck. Um, so similarly, like when you start pumping up the minerals in particular, you start running the risk of inhibiting other minerals right. or other vitamin absorption. So I would caution people to not do high doses of zinc or high doses of vitamin A or high doses of vitamin D unsupervised. Um, I do think that monitoring levels and making sure you're not overdoing it or bucking up other systems would be important. Um, but yeah, I think most people could take a reasonable dose of any of these things or a moderate to hefty dose of magnesium without any detrimental effect. Um, but you can become toxic in any of the fat solubles, particularly A and D. So you want to be a little bit cautious with supplementing high doses of those. Mm-hmm. Yep. But that's the glory. If you get a lot of these things through food and sunshine, then you don't have to worry nearly as much. And then it's kind of a moot point anyway. Right. So, nutritional diversity as much as possible. Put down the Captain Crunch in the morning and have some freaking eggs. And, <laughs> right. you know, live, live your life. 
Um, watch, we're going to get angry comments from the vegans now. I was one of you. Yeah. <laughs> don't, don't hate on me too much. Well, I was never a vegan because at the time I was on, I was not willing to give up dairy. Yeah. And the ultimate irony is that I discovered <laughs> dairy was one of the things my body really hates. Oh, so God. Yeah. I went from vegetarian who ate primarily gluten, dairy, and soy to, oh, and, and uh, hummus. Lots of hummus. And then I flipped and I realized, okay, gluten and dairy and sesame are no goes. Oh my god! And I had to, I had to shift pretty drastically. The only one that I overconsumed for years and I appear, I appear to not have a problem with is soy. It mm. is a miracle of all miracles. I don't know how my body <laughs> deals with soy because I ate. Have you ever seen a tofurkey? No, and I'm kind of scared to learn. <laughs> okay, here's this is just like. We'll, we'll talk about this at Thanksgiving time, too, I'm sure. Right. But, all right. So my mom and I went vegetarian at the same time. She wanted to lose weight. I was too lazy to chew meat. I swear to God. I, like, I complained. When I was two years old, they wrote in my baby book that I complained that meat was too hard to chew. Oh, my. You don't get lazier than that as, as a human. And then when I was 11, my mom came home and was like, Nick, I want to be a vegetarian. You want to try it with me? And I was like, sure. <laughs> like, not a lot of thought. I was just like, all right, yeah. Because I was kind of neutral on the whole meat experience. Anyway. Right. So um, sounded like a good good thing for me. My mom said I always preferred foods that I could just gum down, <laughs> like yogurt. Oh my pudding. gosh, anyway, you're like an old man. I know. <laughs> yeah. So, and if I ever lose all my teeth, I will revert back to that old man behavior <laughs> anyway. But um, you know, I I preferred softer things anyway. So it was no big deal for me. My mom lasted about six months. Oh, my god! And she craved blood. Oh, god! She needed the iron. Like, she was yeah. really, really iron deficient, and it set in very quickly. And, like, her doctor measured her levels. They were like, whoa, you need iron. And she was like, okay. And then she backed it. But then I I was like, yeah, yeah, I'm going to keep this up. And then I was a vegetarian for another ten and a half years. Oh, my so, god! Or maybe 11. So um, when my mom and I were both vegetarians... We were exploring all the different vegan and vegetarian foods. And this was back in like, okay, I'm 35. This would have been 1996 because I was 11. And in 1996, we didn't have Whole Foods. We didn't have Amazon Prime. We didn't have Miyoko's and all of the beautiful, amazing things we have now. We had like cardboard and bush. So we went to the Hippy Dippy Green Star in Ithaca, New York, and it was like the hippy dippiest market that we could find. And we got all of these weird ass vegan foods that were like modified hydrolyzed soy isolated oh protein shit. And okay, so we got the tofurkey lunch meat, which at the time we thought was good. I can't tell you now because it's been years, but at the time we were like, yeah, this is good. So we would get the tofurkey lunch meat. Uh, there was literally no fake cheese. Nobody had figured out how to make fake cheese at that point. So this is why I could never give up the cheese at the time. Because I was like, there's literally no substitute. No. Um, we would get, oh, we would get the tofurkey hot dogs. And we would get the veggie burgers, like the Morningstar Farms. The ones that try to look like meat. Right. But they're not meat. Now, if I eat a veggie burger, I get the ones that have actual vegetables in it. And you can see, like, the bits of carrot and stuff. Right. That's beside the point. But for Thanksgiving, we were like, oh, man, what do we do? We usually have turkey like a normal American. And Green Star had tofurkey. Oh and it was gosh. this this 
blob. The only way I can describe it is it's approximately the size and shape of a human brain. And yes, I've seen real human brains because dissection anatomy classes are so fun. So it's about the size and shape of a real human brain. About yay, yay big. And it's a blob. It is an amorphous blob with no real life of its own. And you're supposed to bake this blob of tofurkey in the oven. And then it they show you the picture on the label. And you're like, wow, it kind of looks like a turkey. No. It, it will not look like a turkey. It will never look like a turkey. Give up the dream that it will look like a turkey. And then we're like, well, hopefully it tastes good. To this day, again, it was 1996. We're recording this in 2021. I almost said 2011. <laughs> um, so this was, what, 25 years ago. And my mom, to this day, if you say the word tofurkey, she will reply, rubberized sea sponge. Oh, my gosh. That was that was our opinion of it. It was so spongy and chewy and had no taste of its own. And it was just like this very, it was the epitome of a neutral object. Like no, no defining characteristics other than the sponginess, the chewiness, and the total lack of color. It was this off, off tan color, this blob. So anyway, I don't like this at all. This is you should. You out. should. Ex- I feel like everybody should experience a bite of tofurkey once in their life, just so that you could appreciate how yeah. delicious actual meat is. But <laughs> I. So then, from that point on, I just like I would eat all the vegetables at Thanksgiving, and I would just skip the turkey. Right. Um, but we never bought it again because, oh my god! At least in 1996, tofurkey was the most horrible thing I've ever tasted. Um, so yeah, I don't remember how I got on that tangent, other than recounting my vegetarian years oh because i was one of you people so yes i know i picked on the vegans and the vegetarians a little bit today but i was one of you right so i get the plight of the vegetarian and the vegan she gets it she gets it i'm just no longer one i had to shift my priorities when the whole celiac thing hit the fan and right i realized that gluten was not a happening thing right yeah i wonder if tofurkey has gluten in it Maybe. Probably. When, um, when anyway. would have passed it. Yeah. Maybe that's what gave it that chew. For sure. I gave it that, like, thickened it up a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. Well, anyway, this was a weird tangent to take. But as always, thank you for tuning in for the IVS Freedom Podcast, <laughs> where you can learn about tofurkey that is a rubberized sea sponge. And what else did we talk about? Oh, we talked about the, the secretory IGA that comes out your butt. Yeah. So that was good. Or the enzyme that comes out your butt, whatever it was. I know. Uh, that was if that's bad. not a 40 and slip, I don't know what is. Oh, um, God. But yeah, thank you for tuning in. As always, next time we will tackle either the B vitamins or the minerals. We'll see what floats our boat when we get there. And uh, as always, if you like this video, go ahead and like, subscribe to the YouTube channel, drop a comment down below. We do collect comments and questions for our sporadic Q&A episodes. So stay tuned for that. And if you are on podcasting apps, if you could rate us five stars, that would be wonderful. I mean, hell, if you made it through a two hour and three minute podcast episode, you clearly like the podcast. Right. Rate us five stars. We're crying out loud. And um, yeah, and holler at us on the Instagram. I am Triangle Guts. This is Amy underscore Hollenkamp. Or is it Amy Hollenkamp underscore RD? It's Amy underscore Hollenkamp underscore RD. There we go. So that's how you can find Amy. And we do have a IBS Freedom Podcast Instagram handle at IBS Freedom Podcast. Or maybe IBS.Freedom. Yeah, that's right. That's right. That's yeah. right. 
There's well, we're getting back in the routine. Um, but yeah, holler at us and we will see you in the next episode. Thank you so much for tuning in and share the IBS Freedom Pod with all your family, all your friends, everyone who needs it. We'll, we'll get this information to the people who need it most. Thank you for tuning in, guys. See you, see you sometime soon.